Scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is God's word. Well, that's a cheerful topic for a Sunday morning. Can't understand why we didn't use this one for the children's talk. Um, my name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It's lovely to have you with us this morning as we work through 1 Corinthians. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Father God, we pray that we would be humble enough to allow your word to correct our views rather than judging your word and requiring it to fit in with what we think is right. Amen. Well, every culture in all of history has had a problem with the Bible. There is not a human culture ever that has read God's word, the Bible, and said, well, that's exactly what we thought right and wrong was. Every culture has always had a problem. In more traditional cultures, in the Middle Ages, they read Jesus saying, love your enemies. That is ridiculous. Ridiculous, they thought. They read that Jew and Gentile, all peoples, were equal in the eyes of God. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God, and they thought it was ridiculous. But God's word changed those cultures. It's different for us today. We have different issues. But just like them, we find the Bible offensive. And it's a triple whammy of offensiveness in this passage. Uh, I mean, it just about nails all the big issues of 21st century London. There is such a thing as consensual sex that is wrong. What? We shouldn't always tolerate the behavior of others. Sometimes we should judge it. What? As an individual, I don't have the right to do whatever I want. I have a responsibility to behave in a way which serves my community. What? It's a complete triple whammy of offending our culture. You couldn't make up a passage that was less in line with 21st century London. But as ever, as ever, 
God's word speaks what we need to hear for our good. I mean, if you genuinely expect God to agree with everything you think already, it's not God you're after. It's you think you're God. We must surely expect, if there is a God, that he's going to say some things which will be radically, offensively different to what we think. And here, the the big point really is that God says the church, the gathering of his people, needs to be radically different from the world outside so that the church can serve the world. The church needs to be radically different from the world to serve the world. Okay, three points for you. You've got them on the sheet just to help us navigate our way through this text. Firstly, how should the church respond to sin? Not with celebration, but with discipline. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So you've got a prominent member of this church in Corinth is having sex with his stepmother. Now, the Old Testament clearly condemned that, Leviticus 18.8, Leviticus 20.11. And when Jesus turns up and his apostles teach, they endorse the the teaching of the Old Testament, the sexual morality of the Old Testament. And as you get into the New Testament, rather than repeating all the chapters and chapters of of teaching that the Old Testament has about um, sexual immorality, They just use this one term. It's actually one word in the Greek, sexual immorality. It's just a catch-all term for the whole junk drawer of immorality that the Old Testament describes. Any sex outside of a faithful marriage between one man and one woman is described as sexual immorality. Now, sleeping with your stepmother just happens to be a particularly shocking example. And Paul's not exaggerating when he says it's of a kind even pagans do not tolerate. The Roman writer Cicero describes a situation exactly like this and says, this is just unbelievable and quite unheard of. And if you've had the benefits of a classical education, the thought that there was any kind of sex that the Romans thought was unbelievable and unheard of is itself unbelievable and quite unheard of. So you've got a shocking state of affairs in the church. But what's striking is that in this chapter, Paul's biggest issue is not with the man. That's not his big issue with the man for carrying on in this way. Paul's big issue is with the church for tolerating it. Verse 2, and you, the church, are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Instead, they don't even just tolerate what's going on. They take pride in it. What's going on in a church that takes pride in behavior like that? If you flick over to to chapter 6 and verse 12, I think you see something of the answer. So Paul in in 6 starts to quote some of the slogans that were flying around the Corinthian church. And here's one of them, 6.12. I have the right to do anything, you say. Now what's probably going on is that here's a church that's understood that in the gospel, when Jesus dies for our sins, it sets us completely free from the Old Testament law. But they've completely misunderstood what that freedom is. I have the right to do anything now. Yes, absolutely. But God designed human beings to find our full freedom and our greatest joy in obeying and serving him. He made us as fish to swim in the water. We die when we try and get out of the water. And this church, 
this church is acting as if they can ignore God's rules and that the freedom is not freedom from sin, but freedom for sin. How very wrong they are. And so Paul says in verse 2, you should have responded not with pride, but with mourning. Mourning because the church is a body. And as he says in 12.26, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. I, was, I spent a day yesterday displaying my man skills, doing a complex DIY, assembling IKEA furniture. Uh, and so occasionally, um, occasionally, I hit my thumb. And it wasn't only my thumb that hurt when I hit my thumb with a hammer. My whole body hurt. And my voice expressed it uh, in appropriate ways. And we're a body as a church. When one part suffers, the whole body suffers. The church is a body, it's a family. That means your sin is not a private matter, and neither is mine. Your sin affects me, and my sin affects you. That's what Paul says here. And so we should mourn when there is flagrant sin amongst us. We should also mourn because dealing with sinful messes is a miserable business. Paul says, look, the right attitude is... Ah. Uh, it's a miserable business. There's no self-righteousness. No, oh good, I always knew that they weren't up to it, and let's condemn them. There's no finger-pointing, no pride, no self-righteousness. There's mourning. It's a humble, sorrowful business. But we must take action. The attitude is mourning. The action, the action that should be taken is discipline. Now here that means putting the person out of fellowship, verse 2. Put them out of your fellowship. The rest of the New Testament kind of fills in what's going on and what the process is. So the rest of the New Testament tells us action should be taken very slowly and very carefully. But if after careful, loving, persistent warnings, if after time is given to help people change, offers of help to give them the support they need, if after all of that, someone persistently, unrepentantly continues in doing things the Bible says are sin, well, then they have to be put out of the fellowship. And that's clearly the point that's been reached in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, this is an issue that's been rumbling along for a while. It's not just that the guy became a Christian yesterday and we told, right, you've got 24 hours. If your life's not perfect, then you're out. It, this has been something that's been going on for ages. Nor is this someone who's trying to obey God, uh, but they keep falling back into a sin. If that was the case, we'd all be out of fellowship, let's be honest. This is different. This is not someone trying to obey God and failing. This is someone failing even to try, happy to carry on with their sin. Well, what does it mean to put them out of the fellowship of the church? I think you get some help in three to five as we carry on. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So you see, it's, firstly, it's official action from verses 3 to 4. This is not something that any of us can just do. You know, I mean, parking in Mayfair is not the most straightforward thing, and you're waiting for a space, and somebody pulls out, and then before you even get in, um, 
the Valeriano's not here, so Adrian Valeriano backs in and nicks your space and laughs, ha, 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 and gets out of the car to walk to church. You don't get to say, right, well, I'm putting you out of fellowship. You, you, you don't have the right to do that. It's not an individual thing. None of us get to do that on our own. Rather, verses 3 to 4, it's the considered action of the, all the church leaders, of the church as an authoritative group. The talk of the Lord Jesus um, being present echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 18 to 20, when he says, look, when church leadership takes the decision eventually, slowly, to discipline somebody, he says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. In other words, Jesus says there, we have his authority. He is with us in these difficult decisions. So it's a decision that's taken by the church as a corporate body through the leaders. And secondly, it involves handing someone over to Satan. Now, what on earth does that mean? Don't worry, it's not some weird ceremony involving goats being sacrificed at midnight over a pentagram of upside-down crosses. It's, there's, there's nothing weird about it. He's just using extreme language to make the point, saying that the world is the realm of Satan. And to become a Christian, Colossians 1.13, is to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. And so he says, look, what you basically are saying to the person is, if you continue to live like this, if you continue to willfully sin and turn your back on God, you're effectively declaring that you're not a child of God. And so we will treat you that way. We'll treat you as someone who is not one of God's people, who is in the realm of Satan. What does that mean practically? I, th I think it means that the person is not allowed to share the Lord's Supper, uh, which we'll be having shortly, because that's the meal that celebrates that you're forgiven and that you've become part of the covenant people of God. At this church, we usually say it means you don't get to be part of the regular midweek groups because those are gatherings for God's children as we seek to encourage one another and, and support one another. But we do encourage those who've been put in discipline to keep coming on a Sunday morning to hear the word of God in church in the hope that they'll repent. At the end of verse 11 also helps. You see it says, uh, don't even eat with such people. It's a way of saying, look, when, when the church sadly has to discipline somebody, normal relationships change. They need their friends more than ever at that point. We're not to cut people off, but friendship changes. So you don't just eat normally. You might have dinner with a friend who's in sin and has been disciplined. But at some point you're going to say, look, it is good to see you, but I need to ask, are you ready to repent yet? Isn't it time to repent? Normal relationships change. I have to say, there is, in my experience, almost nothing quite as miserable as having to administer church discipline. It's a horrible business. So why do we do it? Why should the church discipline sin? Well, as we'll see in 5 to 8, for the good of the individual and for the good of the church. The first reason that you discipline is because it's for the good of the individual, bizarrely. Uh, verse 5 sounds so shocking that we, we kind of miss the, the point of it. Do you see what it's actually saying? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, the flesh there stands for the sinful attitudes and actions. In other words, he's saying, look, as a last resort, hand this person over, treat them as if they're not a Christian. Why, though? 
Well, so it wakes them up. So they come to their senses. So they see the results, the end point of their actions. And they come back to God. So they finally realize that no sinful pleasure is worth it if it means missing out on eternal life. Sometimes you have to help people see the consequences of their actions. I remember um, going sailing with some friends. And uh, we, were, we were planning on uh, sailing across on the south coast of, uh, of Britain. And the, the weather had got a little bit tasty, but uh, we were um, extremely skilled and experienced. No, we were 22 and 23, and therefore we knew everything and, uh, and could handle anything. And uh, there were four of us on the boat. And as we sailed out, most of the other boats were, were sailing in, but um, as we sailed out to, to head across uh, Lime Bay, the uh, radio crackled into life, and it was the Coast Guard. And the, the Coast Guard said, uh, you do understand there is a very big storm coming in. Yeah, 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 we're experienced. We'll be fine. No, no, it, it, we're talking it could be force 10 out there. Yeah, we'll be fine. There was a pause, and the Coast Guard said, wonderful. Could you just give us the, uh, the contact details of your next of kin so that we're able to notify them if and when things go badly wrong? And there was a sort of long pause on the boat. And we turned around. <laughs> Sometimes you need to see the consequences of what's going to happen if you carry on. And that's exactly what's going on here. You put someone out of the church now so they realize, look, don't you realize, if you carry on living in sin, do you know where sin leads? Sin leads to death, to eternal hell. It's an awful thing to do. But you do it because you love people and you want them to wake up and realize the consequences of their action. Uh, forgive me, the, the slightly odd provocative sermon title. It's not Satan who saves. How Satan saves, I think it says. It's not Satan that saves. But being handed over, being put out of church, the experience of living without the forgiveness, the fellowship, the earthly indications of a relationship with God, that experience wakes people up. Do you realize, I don't want, to, I don't want my eternity to be like this. And it does work. We've seen it happen here at church. So to hand someone over to Satan means you treat them as if they're not a Christian in the prayerful hope that that will wake them up and bring them back. And when they do, we welcome them with open arms and with genuine rejoicing. We don't expect them to suddenly become perfect, but we do expect them to need lots of help and we offer it openly. We do everything and anything we can to make it easier for them to walk away from sin and towards Christ. If they're living in a sinful relationship, then we give them a room in our house so that they've got somewhere else to live. If they're earning money in a way that's dodgy, we might cover their finances until they've got a, a job that, they, that means they can pay their way. We desperately want them to come back and we'll do anything to make that possible. So you see, the aim is not vindictive. It's not a bunch of Pharisees waiting for someone to step out of line so we can jump on them and judge them. The aim is not vindictive. It's restorative. It's loving parents wanting to bring back a child who's wandering into danger. So we discipline for the, for the good of the individual, but we also do it for the good of the rest of the church family. Look with me at uh, verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul now takes us back to the seminal moment in Israelite history, the Passover. Uh, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, and the rescue begins with the sacrificing of a lamb. Uh, The lamb is killed symbolically taking the punishment of the people so that they are not under the judgment of God as they come out. And each year, they celebrate their rescue by killing a lamb, eating it, and eating unleavened bread. That's uh, bread that hasn't risen, flat bread. Now, if you'll excuse the ridiculousness of a baking lesson from me, there is an important thing for us to understand. Uh, The the translation, uh, to try and make sense to modern ears, it, it slightly changes the wording here. Where it says yeast, it should just say leaven. It should say Uh, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch? Get rid of the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Okay, how does that help you? Um, What happened was, uh, if if you kept the dough for a week, it would ferment and it would rise. That's the leaven, the bit that you kept for a week. And so each week you would keep over a bit and then add it to the new batch. And the old leavened dough, the leaven, would affect the whole new batch of unleavened bread and make it rise. And so each week, you'd keep over a little bit of the the dough, the leaven, and over the week, it would ferment, and then you'd add it to the new, and it would make the whole new batch rise. Okay? With me? So that tiny bit that you keep over, it changes the new bread and makes it rise. So Paul's point is this, if you're wondering what on earth are we talking about. The Passover instructions said, when you're celebrating God's rescue annually, when you're having your annual Passover celebration, you've got to get rid of all leavened bread from the house. All leaven. Because it symbolizes the old life. It's a big visual illustration. And you celebrate the Passover with a fresh batch of dough with none of the old leaven in. So you eat flat bread and, and eat the the meat. So it's a visual illustration to help us understand when when you start to follow Jesus, when you become his people, your life changes. You get rid of the old and you start afresh. The old leaven goes and you start afresh with unleavened bread. And he says, look, the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has now been sacrificed. So now is not the time for dragging the old behaviors into the new life. Now, you start afresh with a new set of behaviors that are appropriate for a follower of Jesus. The problem with sin is that like leaven, it spreads through and infects the new batch. And this is why Paul's image is so helpful. He says, look, if you allow the old patterns of behavior to to continue, they won't just affect you, they will spread through the whole batch, the whole church. We kid ourselves, my sin, my behavior, that is my business. If I want to do things the Bible says are wrong, that is between me and God. It has nothing to do with you. But sin is infectious. It just is. You know the three stages of uh, sickness in the office? Stage one, you've got a good work ethic, so you soldier on and you come in even when you're ill. Stage two, fed up of work, so you're ill, you stay home and watch Netflix. Stage three, you really dislike your colleagues, so if you're ill, you might as well go in and share your germs with them. Those are the three stages of sickness. 
But look, if you contract a nasty, highly contagious infection, that is not just a private matter between you and the GP. If you're part of a family, if you come along to church, it's, oh, it affects all of us as well. You can hurt us by coming here with your infection. And so for the good of everybody else, you you need to be kept away from the family while you're infectious. Sin is the most deadly infection the world has ever known. It has a 100% mortality rate. Only Jesus Christ can change that. And I say from bitter experience, the single thing that causes sexual immorality to spread fastest and furthest within a church like ours is when one person carries on and it's not dealt with. Nothing makes it spread faster than when it's not dealt with in the life of one person. And so churches are to discipline unrepentant sin for the good of the individual and for the good of everybody else. Now, interestingly, in the last verses, what Paul does is he he slightly moves on. He he says, okay, so what should church be? What, What picture of church have we got here? And what we understand is that a church is God's faithful presence in the world. Faithful, in other words, the behavior of the church is to be faithful to God, shaped by God, not by the world. But the church is also to be God's presence. That is, the church must not hide away. It must be part of mainstream society. We've got to be out there living it in the world. Too often, though, the church is precisely the opposite of Paul's vision. Forever banging on about the sins of the wicked people out there, while hypocritically tolerating all manner of filth in here. But you see uh, what matters to Paul most as you look at these verses. Uh, Look at verse 9 to 13. What's his concern? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out a generation ago, the great concern of the New Testament is not about the size of the church. The New Testament has very little to say about that. It's about the purity of the church. And you see from these verses, it's not just sexual sin. That just happens to be the issue that's going on in Corinth. Any sin that's openly tolerated in the church, it stops the church being God's light to the world. It's, it's like mud covering the headlights. It stops the light shining out. So the church must be faithful to God. And that means the church has got to be different from the world. Uh, different in attitudes to sex, to money, to truth, to the poor, to the marginalized. In almost every area, the church has got to be different. Now, the danger, of course, is as soon as the church grasps the need to be different, it retreats from society. So in medieval times, uh, they did this by physically building great monasteries up on the hills, away from the great unwashed, so that they could avoid the contamination from the world. Now, in modern times, we don't build monasteries, but we do erect sort of invisible barriers between us and the world that we should be serving. 
the danger is we might work with uh, non-Christians, but we never get to know them. There's a social barrier. We might be hospitable, but it's rarely unbelievers who are the ones invited to our homes and are part of the conversations around our tables. It's, it's just the way we are. Uh, I read a very, very good book by um, a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. She was, um, uh, she was a professor of queer studies um, at a prominent um, university in the States, and she met a pastor of a local reformed church, a Bible-teaching church, totally different worldview, totally different morality, totally different life. And they, they basically, uh, they'd, there'd been a discussion and she realized everything this guy said, completely the opposite to everything she thought. But the extraordinary thing was that uh, once they realized their worlds were completely opposite, their ideas of right and wrong were completely opposite, the pastor and his wife invited her in to their family and kept inviting her and didn't make her pretend she was different, didn't wait for her to change, but invited her in as she was. And over time, as she met the family, as she sat around their table, as she learned about Christ from them, she came to to put her trust in Christ. And she's written a very interesting book called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which is saying that we we need to welcome the world in. The church has got to stop being a closed club. If the church allows itself to be cut off from the world, we cannot serve the world. We cannot offer hope to people we do not know. If the church allows itself to become like the world, then the church has nothing to offer the world either. If we just share the morality of the world, then when people do come in, they'll see us, they'll shrug, they'll smirk. I knew there was nothing to that Jesus. The church must be different for the world must be faithful and present. Basically, the picture is of an Ebola clinic. Uh, You've seen the the pictures, I I presume, from the awful images in the news of the the recent outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. And you'll see the clinics are painstakingly pure places. There's three levels of decontamination before people can get back into the clinic who've been out um, serving people outside. They are meticulously, scrupulously purified to make sure there is no contamination inside. Why? So that they can serve the people outside, so that they can bring life to them and healing to them. If they let Ebola get inside the clinic, they can't help anybody. But if they just remain pure in, their, in, a, in a nicer tropical diseases um, study ward in, in a Western country, uh, safely sealed off by a thousand miles of ocean from the, from the outbreak, they're no use to anybody. They need to be where the outbreak is, but they also need to be pure inside. And that's what the church has got to be like. Pure, but present. Faithful presence. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And it's right after a passage like this that you and I soberly examine ourselves before we do so. And if you realize, as we get ready to share the Lord's Supper, that you are an unworthy sinner, then you should come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. Jesus died to save sinners. And this is a meal in which we celebrate our forgiveness through his death. If you realize as you sit there that you have sinned badly this week, 
well then, you should come forward. All of us sin every day. Frankly, it would be a lot more worrying if you thought you hadn't sinned this week. If that's the case, I'm sure your friends and family will set you right on when you last sinned. If you realize, however, that there is a sin that you're struggling with and you don't feel free of and you cannot promise that you won't fall back into it next week, then come forward. We're saved by Jesus' death, not by our promise of perfection. He died because we're too weak to overcome sin on our own. The only category of person that concerns Paul is the person who sits there and says, I don't care. My sin doesn't matter, and I don't want God to help me stop. That's the person for whom 1 Corinthians 5 was written. And as your loving church family, we'll do everything we can to help you see how serious that is and help you turn away from the path you're on because we love you too much to let you wander comfortably to your own destruction. But to everybody and anybody else, if you trust in the Lord Jesus and you know you're a sinner, then come to celebrate forgiveness at his table now. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you love us far too much to let us wander towards hell without warning us. We pray that we would love each other enough that we would gently and informally and lovingly correct one another when we need it, when we're in danger, which all of us need at some point. And we pray that we would be a church that cares enough about offering your light of salvation to the world, that we would take sin amongst ourselves seriously. Father, we pray this morning for any who are in the thick of this battle right now. Please, Father, would you help us to to cry out for help, to come back to you and to seek the help of our family. Thank you that when we come back to the Lord Jesus, we find full forgiveness for every sin, full cleansing for every stain, and the power of your Holy Spirit to help us change. Amen.